0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Good morning, Grace. Good morning. Turn to Peter. No, I'm kidding. As you well know, we're going to be studying James. So let's pray together and we'll start. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us and that we can all gather in your house, in the house of prayer. And as we begin this study in the book of James, I ask that you be with us and guide us so we can grow more spiritually and get to be more and more like you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, just to give you some background, I was very excited about the book of James because it was going to be real easy for me. I was going to take, I already did a sermon series in James and Russian and then I was just going to translate it into English and voila right I'm done easy not so God had other plans he said uh, remember when you were preaching and you said uh, Christopher Columbus is given credit for discovering America but how much America did he really discover he said how much of James did you really discover so <laughs> being Jonah Jr. that I am I kind of proceeded to translate anyway didn't work. Nothing was working. So I started meditating on the Word of God. And I am really excited, not just by doing this series, but because i spiritually more mature now than i done this study the second time around. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I already read that text a hundred times and there's nothing new. Well, there's still golden nuggets there. So, but I began to study and meditate on this. And of course, figured out that my hands were too short to fight with God there's something uh, that's also expected of you. You expect the preacher to come here. You hope that he prayed, he studied, right? Prepared the sermon that he can deliver and something that you can apply to your daily living. But the Word of God actually tells you guys to come here prepared as well. So let me read this to you. James 1, 19 through 25, he said, So then, my beloved brethren, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observe himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he, who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. No, it says doer of the what? Work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So we'll talk about the work a little bit later. But it tells you that you should receive the word. You come prepared. With meekness, you lay aside all that filthiness. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do, and we can experiment with this study, and then you can blame me later. Before you come to church, write these down because there will be a quiz. Before you come to church, I need you guys to seriously pray about the service. I want you to pray not just for the preacher. Pray for the worship band. Pray for anyone who's going to be doing special music or singing during offering. Pray that for that person. I want you to pray for the preacher. Remember I said the preacher is a newsboy, not an editor. So he delivers the message. And you have to have pray for yourself that you come with an open heart. And when I say open heart, I mean a repentant The heart that is ready to receive the seed. When we plant things, right? It's season to plant things. What do we do? We dig up dirt. to Put up the seed. So look in your heart. Look at Matthew 13, 4, 4 through 9. It says, and as he sowed, some seed fell by wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where it did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So prepare the good ground of your heart to receive the seed of the word. Second, I want you to bring a physical Bible. I know some people are probably like, What? What's a physical Bible? But a Bible in hand is worth two on a shelf, right? So, and, and I'm not against technology, but here's the technology. If we're going to study, and you're really going to study, and I experienced this, you're sitting there on an the electronic, then the Facebook message pops up, looking up the Facebook. Then you get, what, what did the preacher say? I want you to be focused on what we're talking about. Why? Because I am not so, I'm a boring pastor sometimes, right? Boring preacher, so... You need to pray for me and help me out here, but pay attention because there are some things that will be very, very useful for you in the study of James. So bring a pencil, paper, write these things down, reflect on them. And the last thing is, every week, I would like for you to read all five chapters. Every week. It takes 20 minutes, guys. It's only 108 verses. When I say five chapters... It's only 108 verses. It's not that long. I read it over and over, 20 minutes. Read all five chapters. Just read through it. And I know, again, I want you to pray especially for me. I'm asking you that. I need it. And some may be saying, why is he opening up the sermon series this way? Well, Scott said it best two weeks ago. We need to grow up. Time to pull our pants up, I believe, those exact, exact words. You see, because God gives us His Word not just for information, that we come here and just get information. He gives it for our transformation. If you, give, if you listen to it and nothing's happening to you, you're in the wrong place. So where regardless where you are in your spiritual journey, you can always go higher. And if you do these things, when we're done with this study you will be more spiritually mature than you are today. You will be. And that's the point of the Christian life. So, you know, one preacher gave me advice on growing spiritually. He said, "Go slow, start slow. Get that basics down. Start slow. Don't be, try to be a theologian right away. Start slow. Go slow. Rise higher. And then catch fire. And that's what we need to do as a church. Catch fire. So why study James. Why? Martin Luther didn't want it out of the Bible, period. Because James shows us, first it has something for everybody in there. James shows us how to have a living, visible, productive faith in this fallen world. There's those that are going through trials right now. Anybody in the trial? Somebody said there's only three categories of people when it comes to trials. Those are in trials. Those are people coming out of trials and those people that are going to go into the trials. Everybody, regardless if you're saved or not, you're going to have trials. You have maybe some of you facing some temptations that you can't overcome. James got something to say about that. You got issues with your speech or your tongue. He's got a whole lot of things to say about that. Financial problems. Maybe some of us can't pay the bills. Maybe we show favoritism to the rich or other people, partiality, and so on. He deals with everyday Christianity. But there's two primary reasons, as we saw. It's to examine the relationship between faith and works. Now, something about the book of James, it was written before the famous council of Jerusalem in 49 AD. Why am I bringing that up? Because it means it's probably the oldest book in the whole New Testament out of the 27 books. And it reflects the Jewish Christian teachings in its initial stages. Because it was composed before Paul's writing, James discusses the subjects of faith and works independently from Paul's teaching. A lot of people get confused that James and Paul contradict each other. They do not. But rather they supplement You see, Paul explaining, when when Paul is preaching, he's explaining how sinners become saints. James is explaining how saints become sanctified. That's what he's doing. James approaches faith subjectively, sense of trust and confidence in the Lord, while Paul explains it objectively as an instrument by which a believer is justified before God. So James does refer to faith 14 different times in this letter, but on the other hand... It is filled with commands to obey. Matter of fact, 108 verses, there's 54, counted, imperatives. Commands for us to obey, almost half. Obedience is everywhere. So what James is doing, he enlarges our practical understanding of faith and talks about that genuine faith acts and genuine faith works. See... We live in the world, as soon as you talk about obedience, commands, laws, works in the Christian life, what people do? Legalism, 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 and run away. People say Christianity is not about doing this and that. James Sand, saying, yes it is. Yes it is. And uh, we'll get to it, but in James 2, 14 through 26, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Not my faith with works, by my works. We don't work to be saved, but we work because we are saved. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do, not, do, you, not, <laughs> but do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works and then offered Isaac his son on an altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect. A scripture was fulfilled in which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab, Rahab a harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? We heard sermon from, from Mike regarding that. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. dead also. You know, James probably wouldn't make it as a pastor today. But we must be careful to understand the relationship between faith In works, Because there's two groups. They go to one extreme or the other. They supplement. We have to understand it rightly, biblically, and this book will challenge us. So, nevertheless, the point of James is clear. There is a relationship between faith and works. So, it's immature, slow, you know, it's kind of, to be blunt, it's damning if you try to separate the two. So, there's another aspect of the idea that faith works, not only acts, but James also teaches us that faith is effective in the world. And to explore the impact of our faith in the life of this city and in this world. Like I said, James addresses many practical issues. Trials, poverty, riches, materialism, favoritism, social justice, the tongue, wordliness. What does wordliness mean? We'll we'll talk about that. Boasting, making plans, praying, and whatever you do, what should you do when you're sick? He talks about all these things. You see, but there's a tendency in our generation. For those especially who say they're a Christian, they fail to understand that their Christian faith is to have an impact upon their daily behavior. You all look like saints when you come here. I don't know what you act like when you're outside. There seems to be some kind of disconnect between faith and life. And for many who call themselves Christian, their Christian faith is like a coat they put on a Sunday morning. Put the coat on, they go to church, you know, they do the rotation. And when church is over, they take their coat off and live as well, jolly as they please. Why is that true? Why is it that Christians are convertible people? Angels on Sunday, imps on the weekends and everything like that. Why? Why is it that many people who say they are saved, they're going to heaven when they die, seem to have no understanding that what they believe is to impact in the way they are and to have be and behave or live? We all know this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Right? But sometimes there's nothing new. It's just... The same old stuff. So if I'm in Christ and there's nothing new, is the Bible lying? Or there's something wrong here? When I see a bird that looks like a duck, right? It got feathers like a duck, waddles around like a duck, it quacks like a duck. You probably will come to a conclusion that it's a duck. When I see people who look like the world, act like the world, behave like the world, I am driven to certain conclusions. So it may be that there are some people who profess to be Christians, yet never really received Christ as their personal Savior. They were never born again. Because profession does not always equal possession. The other reason may be that some of who truly have been saved, but for whatever reason, they've never come to understand the moral imperatives of the Christian life. They never understood that to know Christ as your Savior is to affect the way you live in your Christian life. You know, counterfe- counterfeiting is a major problem in the world. In the United States, it's a $500 billion industry. And while we were on vacation in California, we we'll go to Pier 39. I don't know if anybody's been there. But there's these shops, and you can get a $1,000 purse for like 50 bucks. I finally told my wife, you can have any kind of purse you want. <laughs> you see, there's forged money, credit cards. Everything else of value is passed off as genuine, real, for those people that don't pay attention. And the most valuable commodity is our saving faith. So valuable commodities must be carefully examined, right? If they're doing like a painting or a work of art, they bring in all these people that examine it and they take a little chip of the paint and so forth. Have you ever give a gas clerk a dollar buying some gum or something? They just throw it in a drawer and you're out your way. Give them $100. See what they're going to do. Probably look at you up and down and take out the pen. They... Why? They want to know if it's that real because it's valuable. So that's very true. Most valuable commodity of all for us is our saving faith. So if we're deceived by counterfeit money and all that kind of stuff, that's a tempor- temporary loss. But if you are deceived by counterfeit faith, it's eternal tragedy. Who's the master counterfeiter? The devil. You see, the devil is not against religion either. And we'll talk about that. But no matter what you call a skunk, he still stinks. Look at what the, uh, the devil does. He 2 Corinthians 11, 14, 15. And no wonder for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. See, the devil deceives will false religions, and including false forms of Christianity. People think they're on a narrow path, but they're trapped in a counterfeit religion. They simply trust in their personal concept of salvation. A lot of people have this made-up Jesus in their head. He's like a genie in a bottle or, you know, a bellhop boy that always comes when you need him to help, and he's just, he's there to do what you tell him to do. That's it. And because of this ever-present danger of this counterfeit faith, that God's Word, not me, God's Word continually calls us profess salvation to be tested for validity. Testing of your faith. How many would you get on a plane that wasn't tested? Would you get on an airplane that wasn't tested? No. In Psalm seventeen three, David declared the results of God's testing his faith. He said, You have tested my heart. You have visited me at night. You have tried me and found nothing. And I have proposed that my mouth shall not transgress. In Psalm 26, verse 2 verses, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. He echoed the plea and familiar words in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So, And there's also amid chaos and destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah cried out to his fellow Israelites. And he said in Lamentations 3.40, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. And a lot of us probably will just need to do that. The New Testament also regardlessly stresses the necessity of testing faith. John the Baptist challenged the religious readers of his day, and he said Matthew 3.8, he said, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. You repented. You say you're a Christian. Well, now you're a Christian tree. Where's the fruit? John 15.8 says, But there's my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Acts 26.20, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles, they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting your repentance. Repent, okay, I turn to God. Works? What? Again, we're not saved by works, but if we are saved, we will work. And Paul wrote to Galatians, he said in Galatians 6:4, But let each one examine his own work and have rejoicing in himself alone, not in one another. He wrote to Corinthians, "Examine yourself as to whenever you are in faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? We need to understand that the intended result of saving faith is life of good works. And that's for that purpose, you know, Christ redeemed the church. Marilyn said, "Helping other people. That's good works." The dream center, the garage sales, what we do with, we know what's left over. People close their families. That's what we do. That, those are works. And look, after declaring that salvation is by grace alone, we all know this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Let's read together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's where we stop. But James says, Keep on reading. Keep on reading. For we are His workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So faith and works, they're together. You can't separate the two. And Paul wrote to Titus in 2, chapter 2, 11 through 12, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, Denying ungodliness, worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Sounds like there's a lot of things i got to do. And soberly does not mean being drunk. It means thinking biblically, having a clear head. The only way you'll be saturated with the thoughts of Christ is to saturate yourself in the book that's all about Him. The book of James is telling Christians that we should be more concerned with our walk than our talk. So who is this James? There are four men in the New Testament named James, but only two prominent enough to write this kind of a epistle. One is James the son of Zebedee, but he was killed, beheaded, as we Covered that in Acts 12 too. And Peter went, remember they were in jail and Peter went to a prayer meeting and he went to death row. So that eliminates him as a candidate. The other candidate is James, little brother of Jesus himself. Brother of our Lord is the author of this book. And James wrote to challenge his readers to examine their faith to see if his genuine saving faith So let's begin reading the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Readings. And that's as far as we'll get today. James 1, chapter 1. As James introduces us to himself... And what he's about, in these few words, we're going to discover today, we're going to look at today, one, the person of James. Two, we're going to talk about the people of James. And third, I want to talk about the point of James. What kind of man was James? He begins by saying, James, a bound servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ. James, who was a half-brother of our Lord Jesus, they had the same mom, but they had the different dad. James's dad was Joseph, but we know that Jesus's dad was the father because he was conceived through the Holy Spirit. So several things I would like to point out about James. When you piece these verses together in the New Testament that have to do with James, you really have a thrilling and fascinating and exciting story. He was a half-brother of Jesus, as we talked about. So Jesus did have brothers and sisters. There were children born into his family of Mary and Joseph after Jesus. Jesus was the big brother of the family. If we read in Mark 6, 3, it says, Is this not the carpenter of son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended by, at him. So we know he had at least four brothers. And that Judas there, he's the one that wrote the Epistle of Jude. And they're his sisters, that's plural, that means he had more, at least two sisters. So Jesus was brought up in a home where he had brothers and sisters. And as you read that story, you come to find out that the village of Nazareth where Jesus was brought up rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. It had to be embarrassing living in this village for the family members and the peers of the family. Jesus said in this uh, very context, that's why he said in Mark 6, 4, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except his own country among his relatives and in his own house. Jesus experienced one of the bitterest of human sorrow, rejection by his hometown and his own family. In fact, one Bible tells us that his brothers thought that Jesus lost his mind. They thought he'd gone insane. They came to Jesus and they were going to take him. And look at Mark 3 21. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay a hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. So Jesus is out there talking, and Ma says, Go get Jesus. Here comes James, like, Man, how many times I got to go get this crazy dude? And he's the older brother, too. In fact, there was absolute open disbelief in John 7. On, um, if we read John 7, 3-5, his, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Their unbelief... Lasted through Jesus' entire earthly ministry. If you recall, when Jesus was crucified and his mother's right there, who did he tell to take charge of his mother? John. Well, where are all these brothers? He had at least four of them. They were nowhere to be found. See, there was a physical relationship as in terms of family. Now, after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the resurrection, something we talked about last something, something happened to James. Something happened to this boy. What happened to him? Well, I'll tell you. The older brother Jesus was crucified, died, he was buried in a tomb. And James, again, this is just my opinion, probably thought, sign of relief. Yeah, sad he's gone, but Sure was crazy. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, James, how you doing? How's the brothers? You see, we talked about it. In 1 Corinthians, last Sunday, 1 Corinthians 15:7, it says, after that he was seen when Jesus resurrected by James. And then to all the apostles. Somehow. The living Lord, Christ, for whatever reason, manifested himself to reality to his brother James, and James had a conversion experience. Now he received Jesus Christ not as his brother, but as Lord and Savior. He entered not a family relationship, but he entered into a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He finally understood those crazy words. Look at this, Mark 3, 31-34. Then his brothers and his mothers came, staying outside, they sent him they sent to him, calling him. Again, they're like, let's go get Jesus. And the multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered to them, saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around the circle, those that sat about him, and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, if you had a brother, and your mom told you to get him, he's saying this kind of stuff, how would you feel? What would be... What were the thoughts going through your head? I think it was kind of weird mom drop him on his head or what happened? Or maybe in the manger that, you know, one of the donkeys hit him or something. But now, after all those years, Jesus, who was brought up in his very home, he's realizing, not his brother, he's none other than the Son of God. None other than the Savior of the world. Now, when the disciples were gathered in the upper room on the date of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that Jesus' brothers were there. So that tells us they were believers, not just James, but the rest of the brothers too. And not only that, but we discover James became one of the leaders of the early church. Do you know that? Paul, great apostle, we all know about Paul. He seeked advice from James. Did you know that? In fact, in Galatians 2.9, it says about this. Look what it says. Paul writes, And when James, Cephas, it was Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, and they gave me and Barnabas the right of hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they do to the circumcised. And we'll talk about the right hand of fellowship. It's actually at the end of the service, too. So, when Paul came to settle the great issue of salvation, evangelism, the early church had a council in Acts 15. Read with me. 15, 6-13. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And when they were, had much dispute, so there's some dispute going on, Peter rose up. And said to them, so they had a church meeting, they had a business meeting, hope it's not a Baptist type of business meeting, but much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you not know that a good while ago God chose among us that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then the multitude kept silent and listened To Barnabas and Paul. Declaring how many miracles, wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So we have Peter, we have Barnabas, we have Paul speaking. And after he became silent, who answered? James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. They had some decisions to make. Why do they go to this church? Because that's the mother church. Paul has been out there evangelizing, comes back with Barnabas, give her a report, they have problems with Jews because they still hold up to the Moses laws and things. So they had this council to deal with this matter of evangelism among Jews and Gentiles. Did you notice who presides over this council? They listen to Peter, Barnabas, Paul? James. James is responsible to answer. He's seen as the key person in the church. He says, men and brethren, listen to me. James presides over the Jerusalem council and the decision. Look at Acts 15, uh, 19-22. This is James speaking. After he heard all that, he says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses had throughout many generations those who preached him in every city being read in synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men their own company, Antioch, which Paul and Barnabas, namely. Judas was also named Barnabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So James, who thought his older brother was crazy, finally was dead was dead, now James joined forces, and he is seen as the commanding figure of a church. Authoritative figure. But I want you to notice what he says about himself. James, bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm, that's odd. Why wouldn't he say, James... Half-brother of Lord Jesus Christ. James, blood relative of Jesus. Why won't he show some upmanship and say, You listen to me. I'm Mary's son, Jesus' brother. I got the bloodline. He said, James, slave of Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that word, bound servant, means. Slave. Gordon did a wonderful job in the men's prayer breakfast telling us and describing what the word bondservant means. James is a willing slave. James lived only to serve Christ. Hour by hour, day by day, a slave's will belonged to his master. Slaves didn't have a will. Slaves were not allowed to will. No ambition other than the will of their master. James was completely obedient to the will of his master. James belonged to Christ. And men of God in greatest history have this title. in The position of honor. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Psalm 100, and verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. When a person has a servant's attitude, it will squelch all the pride, selfishness, all those things which lead to spiritual defeat. Now, We should not forget that we are to be willing servants of Jesus Christ. Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? That was the attitude of James in his life. Moses, Joshua, Caleb, they're all known as servants. In fact, James referred to himself as a bound slave shows his attitude of obedience, humility, loyalty because the slave had no rights. As I mentioned before, we belong to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For we are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. What does James say about Jesus. He doesn't say, Jesus was my brother. He says, he is Lord Jesus Christ. He uses his full name. Not Christ, not Jesus, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the point? Well, you see, James probably had it tougher than anybody else because he grew up in the home with Jesus. Brought up in the same family. He saw now, now things make sense to him, saw that behavior of Jesus on a daily basis, Here's one of the brothers, Lord Jesus Christ, saw in life probably for 30 years, he saw Jesus Christ practiced what he preached and practiced his faith faith that he professed. He saw it being practiced. Can you imagine growing up in a family with Jesus Christ? Seriously. Can you imagine? The perfect son. Mom, I need help with homework. Mom, I got girl problems. Well, go see what would Jesus do? James is saying, I saw him, I observed his behavior. The Lord Jesus Christ practiced what he preached and seen him growing up. He had this conversion experience. Now, Jesus is out of the grave. James is the head of the church. And you have to understand, having all that, James is a commanding figure. He really does not want to know when you said you're going to do something last Sunday and it's this Sunday and it's not done yet. He don't want to know. He don't want to deal with uh, theory. He wants to deal with function. He wants to know more about your walk and less about your talk. He he's more concerned about our faith demonstrated than declaration. He, doesn't want, he wants to see our duty, not just hear our doctrine. If James were preaching here today, he wouldn't care how much you would agree with him on what he was saying. He would want to know, now that you heard it, what are you going to do about it? He's not like Paul. Mm. When Paul opens up his letters, he's talking about love, joy, faith, hope, and his greetings. James pretty much says, this is KBT version, Cornelius Bible translation. To me, basically says, hello, I'm James. Jesus is Lord. Let's get busy. That's it. That's the mindset of James. So as we go through the study, it's important that you understand that. That's the personality of this man who wrote this letter to us. So the people of James, and be patient with me. I know I'm a little over, but it's important that we get through this. The people of James, 12 tribes scattered abroad. James 1, James bound servant of God. The 12 tribes which scattered abroad, greetings. James wrote to Christian Jews living outside of Palestine. The term 12 tribes can only mean the people of Israel, Jewish nation. The fact that many Jews lived outside their promised land is evidence that they had spiritual decline of the nation. God had scattered them. If you read Deuteronomy 4, 25, 27, and he says, When you beget children and grandchildren you have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord, your God to provoke him to anger... I will call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among peoples that you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive. So when Peter addressed the the congregation or the people at the Pentecost, it lists all these peoples coming from their different nations. So, the problem was they were Jews living outside Israel. So, they had two problems. They were persecuted by the Gentiles because of their being Jews. And they were also persecuted by Jews themselves because they were Christian Jews. And many Jews left Palestine on their own to live in Syria and Egypt. And if you study history, Alexander the Great founded Alexandria and opened up the city to Jewish people. And over a million Jews went in there. And in Syria, Jews settled in Antioch. And that's where the name Christians actually came about. And as persecution escalated in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians scattered all throughout the world. Now, I'm not going to preach too much on history because one preacher told me, don't preach history, preach his story. So, (laughs) well, we'll skip that. But the point of James, as we study this book, you'll discover these Jewish Christians were having the same problems in their personal lives and in their church fellowship. For one thing, they were going through difficulties of testing. They were facing temptations to sin. Some believers were catering to the rich while others were being robbed by the rich. Church members were competing for church offices, particularly teaching offices. There was jealousy in the church who wanted to be a pastor, and that's why James reminds them and writes them there's a price to pay. James in three one says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. One of the problems of the church was failure, that many, many failed to live what they professed to believe. The tongue was a serious problem. It was so much that it was creating wars and divisions in the church. Worldliness. As we review the list of problems, they're not much different problems than the problems of the local church today, are they? Do we not have in the churches people who are suffering for one reason or another? Do we not have members that talk one way but walk another way? Is worldliness not a serious problem? Are there Christians who cannot control their speech, their tongue? It seems to me that James is dealing with very up to date issues. And all of these problems have one common cause spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity, that's the point. These Christians were not grown up. And as we go through this book, you'll see the word perfect many times. It does not mean perfect as imperfect, it means mature, complete. In James 3 2, he says, a perfect man. It doesn't mean sinless man, but rather who's mature, balanced, grown up. Spiritually mature is one of the greatest needs in our churches today. I mean unfortunately most Christians rather play than pray and work on their uh, work on themselves and serving themselves instead of Christ. And the members are not mature enough to eat solid spiritual food that they they need to be fed milk. And that's the problem. People constantly being fed milk. They don't grow. Hebrews 5, 11, 14 says this, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For those by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So spiritual maturity is number one problem in the churches. And sometimes God is looking for mature men, women to carry out His work, and all He can find is little children that can't even get along, right? So how I'm going to kind of skip through and we're going to end here. How how are we going to get the most out of this study? I'm going to give you five essentials to get the most out of this study. Number one. First of all, the essential, we must be born again. We must be born again. Apart from spiritual birth, there can be no spiritual maturity if you're not born again. A lot of Christians have been starched and ironed, but they've never been washed. They were never born again. That's number one. And actually, James mentions it in James 1:18 says, "Of his own will he brought us forth the word of truth that we might be a kind of first-fruits of his creatures." And it's a parallel text in 1 Peter: 123, three. "Haven't been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever." The second is we must examine ourselves in the light of God's word. The Bible compares, James compares the Bible to a mirror, and we read that in James 1 through 22, 24. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone who is a hearer of the word, not a doer. He is like man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So as we study the scriptures and we go through it, there's going to be a divine mirror that you need to look at. And we must be honest with ourselves in what we see. Not merely glance, but take a deep look. And the third one, we must obey God's word, what it teaches us, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. We must be doers of the word, not hearers. It's easy to attend a Bible study. It's easy to attend church, sit here and listen, discuss it. But it's much more difficult to go out in the real world and practice it, isn't it? But... The blessings don't come just by hearing it. Blessings comes by doing it. Fourth is be prepared for trials and testings. Why? Because anytime you get serious about your spiritual growth, the enemy gets serious about opposing you. So the real examination is not in Bible study, but in the school of life. So you hear this, you're going to try to make it right, you will have you know, the enemy is going to be going after you. And finally, we must measure our spiritual growth by the Word of God. Don't measure yourselves to another Christian. Bob, John, whatever. I said there's two dangers to that. You might lay inside the gutter and say, oh, I'm, I'm a little bit taller than this guy. Or you might be comparing to yourself and say, I can never be like that guy. And be discouraged. Always measure your spiritual growth by the word of God. Ephesians 4:14 says, till we all come to unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to measure of stature of fullness of Christ. You see, uh, not everyone who grows old grows up. And for time, I'm going to skip the story. There's a difference between age and maturity. Just because somebody's been a Christian for 10, 20 years doesn't mean that they're spiritually mature. They should be. So mature Christians are happy Christians, useful Christians, Christians who help encourage others, build other, other people up. They build their local church. And as we study James, with God's help, we will learn together and we will mature together. And speaking of growing and maturing together, it is said that a Christian without a church is like a child without a family or a man without a country. And in this cold world, we all need a place where we can be loved, have fellowship, have people pray for us, have happiness. So remember when I said we're going to do the right hand of fellowship? I'd like for the following people to stand up Vincent and Marilyn Mason, Stacy, if they're here, Stacy Cochran, Kefa, and Lanika Cardenge. Grace family, these are new members of Grace Fellowship. They're kind of stuck in the middle. You know, we were waiting on the constitution. (laughs) Welcome. So extend your right hand of fellowship to these guys. And I'm going to end in prayer. Thank you. I'm going to end in prayer, and then and then Dan will lead us in the song. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for this book of James. That's such a wonderful practical manual on our Christian living. Thank you that it deals with not theory, but with the areas all of us need to work on. Our attitudes, our actions, our words, our thoughts, our relationships. Help us mature to grow up and be more like you. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.